want to welcome all of you again. It's lovely to have you here. It's good to see the visitors that we have. You are welcome. It's good to have the winds back. It's been too long, but we're glad you're here today. <clears throat> Thankful for the mercies that God has shown us in another day. Another Lord's Day. If you have a cell phone, would you please check it and make sure that it's on mute. <clears throat> I don't see any visitors with little ones, so we will not have to endure that particular announcement. <clears throat> All here know what to do with your little ones if they need to be quieted down. Children, we do love you and we thank the Lord that you are here with us. <clears throat> and as always seems strange to me, I don't say this to offend any, but it just always seems strange the children disappeared and you didn't see them again until they were in their teen years in the congregation. I thank the Lord that the saints here desire to have their children with them. It is a great encouragement and a great blessing to me. Children, it is thrilling, especially when we get to see those who are brought in as babes and then come to that place where they are standing and singing with mom and dad and hearing the word of God. It is thrilling. <clears throat> if you'd open your Bibles again to the epistle to the Hebrews... <clears throat> For the sake of our visitors and those who have not been here perhaps in a while, we are working through the letter to the Hebrews. I will say this for the new ones here, and I will say it as a reminder for our folk we spent a good bit of time uh, on the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation as we began what is called the Exordium or the first four uh, verses of this letter. Because, as I mentioned then, <clears throat> the Trinity underlies, the doctrine of the Trinity underlies this entire letter and the incarnation as well. If we are not truly and well familiar with Christ as truly God and truly man in one person, if we are not clear on the fact that within the nature of the one God, which is spirit, there are three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> it will make some of the passages in Hebrews a little difficult to work through. Uh, the author very often moves back and forth between Christ's manhood and his deity. And you need to make sure you understand which part you're reading about so that you do not become confused. That said, we will touch on that again to some degree in the message 
this morning. We're going to be reading chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. If you would please stand with me one more time, we will give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. What a precious blessing from God. Uh, I've been working my way very slowly through a book on how the canon came into existence, how it was decided upon, and I went through a history of how the scriptures were written and how they were communicated and how they ended up being in print. And uh, very often we don't realize that the, our brothers and sisters in the first century of the church were not walking around with leather-bound Old Testaments. They didn't have the New Testament, and they very often only heard the word in the gathering of God's people. They had to memorize much as they heard it. Our brethren, uh, almost everybody here is holding a Bible. As we read through this, I, I would urge you to Praise and thank God that you have his word. You have the full canon. That said, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Brethren, this is God's holy word. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. Please remain standing for our morning prayer.
Father, how we praise thee this morning. I bless thee. I pray that our singing, that the prayers that have been uttered, that the reading of thy word has brought thee glory. We thank thee, O triune God, for loving us before the foundation of the world, that thou didst purpose in eternity to save thy people in time. How we thank thee that thy son agreed to come in to this tragic, sin-corrupted world and that he won for us in his life, his death, his resurrection, a perfect righteousness for us. How we praise thee that every child of God here and in every congregation across this world, every regenerate soul stands before thee robed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord. How we praise thee, O God. How our hearts thank thee that thou didst not put it in our hands to save our souls, but that our glorious Christ saves us. And we thank thee for the grace that saves and sanctifies us. Now, Father, thou knowest our needs today. We ask thee, we plead with thee in thy holy Son to draw nigh to us. I trust that all of thy dear children this morning, here and in every true congregation across the face of the earth, that we have come purposed to draw nigh unto thee, that we might know thy drawing nigh to us. We want to know our God. We want the presence of our God. We want to taste of his holiness. We want to taste of his grace and mercy. O Christ Jesus, O blessed head of this church, Thou art among thy candlesticks this day. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be united in love for thee. True, heartfelt, spirit-empowered love. May we engage with thee by the blessed means of grace thou hast given us today. Now as we hear thy word, Lord, I, keep thou, I pray that thou wouldst keep me from distracting or keeping thy people from hearing or understanding thy word. Help this weak vessel to preach the truth in the page before us. Father, there are lost ones here. Thou knowest. We are asking in the name of thy Holy Son if it would please thee to come in saving power, regenerating power. Oh, open the eyes of the blind. Open the ears of the deaf. Father, I pray especially for those who have just enough religion to believe themselves okay. 
that you would shake them loose of a false testimony and that thou wouldst open their heart, that their chains would fall off and they would go out and follow thee. Father, come. Christ Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come. Thou didst give us new hearts. Thou didst make us new creatures. Help us to live in that truth today. Now give us the sense and sensibilities of Christians. Christians in worship. Christians in the presence of their God. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Last time, we took a brief journey through the Psalms and the structure of the Psalms and some of the themes there to see why the author of the Hebrews relies so much on those precious Psalms. And, of course, the discovery was obvious. They're full of Christ. And he goes to the psalm book over and again because there is such glorious revelation of Christ. And he mines those wonderful treasures and sets them before his readers, his original readers, even today, are argued by some, but the the. The way the church has understood through almost all its history is that these, his original readers, his target audience, were Jewish believers who, in the face of persecution, were tempted to retreat from the congregations of the Lord Jesus Christ back into the safety of the Hebrew culture and their synagogues. He is setting forth before them the glory and the beauty and the altogether desirableness of Christ as opposed to the empty shell of the old covenant. And he shows them that Christ and his new covenant are vastly superior. So we move back into our text of Hebrews from our little journey last week. The title of our message this morning is Our Righteous King. Our Righteous King. I'm sorry that you do not have an outline this morning. I will make no explanation or excuses. (coughs) Couldn't get it done. It's been quite the week. So, Let me say to you with all my heart, I pray that as we move through this, you get a greater sense of Christ, a greater sense of who he is, what he has done to save his people. So the the first thought 
were you looking at your outline, would be this. The God who has a God. I will explain that. The God who has a God. In a sermon preached on November 26th of this year, I set two headings before you, the Lord's people. Now, they arose from prayerful consideration of the text. The first heading was this. <clears throat> God says his son is God. And not too many eyebrows were raised about that. But it got better. <clears throat> God says his son is God. If there's only one God, and the Bible emphatically declares that, how can God say that his son is God? That provocative statement arose from Hebrews chapter 1 in the first half of verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The words, but unto the Son, are the spirit-guided words of the author of Hebrews. We need to make sure we know who's talking. Now, the author wants his readers to understand that God is speaking. And God is speaking to his son. <clears throat> and God says to his son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now that is a quote from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. We've spent time on that already. <clears throat> but... The application of those words to Jesus is stunning. There is no greater declaration of Christ's deity in the Bible. The Son's deity cannot be stated more clearly. And the authority that states it, God, cannot be higher. God addressed His Son as God. Now underlying that statement is the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation. And we can make no sense of God's declaration without the Trinity and the Incarnation. For God to declare another person, God, when His Word from Genesis to Revelation plainly says there's only one God, this would be utter contradiction or utter nonsense without the doctrine of the Trinity. So, the second heading was this. God says the Son's kingdom is righteous. The second half of verse 8 and all of verse 9 say, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of of thy kingdom. Thou, son, hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, 
hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now here we learn that the son possesses the symbol of sovereign authority and rule, a scepter of righteousness. In other words, the son is a king who rules his kingdom in righteousness. And in his kingdom, all the citizens must be righteous, as righteous as he is. Two symbols speak of this great kingship. His throne and his scepter. His throne and his scepter. Therefore, the Son, who is God, is also king of a righteous kingdom. He loves righteousness and hates iniquity. Now that statement is followed by another provocative statement. And I use the word provocative in its very best sense, meaning provoking thought. Getting in there, getting inside your mind, your heart, and making you think. To read the book of Hebrews, in fact, I could say this about the scriptures in general, but especially to read the book of Hebrews or something like Romans and just kind of be skimming over it is to be missing the treasures that God has given to us. But sometimes we have to dig for them. He wants us to. He delights when we get in there and dig. So, <clears throat> I say again, the statement, the, the previous statement about Christ loving righteousness and hating iniquity is followed by another provocative statement. Therefore, God, again, please listen carefully, even thy God hath anointed thee. In that context, I made this statement, God has a God. Now, that was not a full theological statement. It demands more uh, explanation than I gave it. So I want us to think about this just for a minute. My statement, God has a God, sounds unusual to us. I admit that. It was meant to be thought-provoking because the text is thought-provoking. This was my very brief summary. So a concern was raised that uh, some of Christ's people might not understand what that meant. So we want to consider the meaning of God has a God. So listen, please, very carefully. That short summary statement arises from the four words, God, even thy God. Who's being spoken to? The Son, who the Father has just pronounced, God. It's not a word game. It is the holy revelation of God 
we're being taught something here that is extraordinary. God, even thy God. Thy God means the Son's God. Again, again, if there's only one God, as the Bible declares repeatedly, how can God have a God? <clears throat> First, I will tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that there is more than one God. I hold to every classic confession and creed that I have read that speaks of the, the doctrine of the Godhead. There's one God. But it's the Bible that's using this language. So we need to be thinking about why it's using that language. <clears throat> so there's not more than one God. There is only one God emphatically. Second, the only way that God has a God can make sense is if the Son became man. God's eternal Son, second person of the Trinity, came into this world to do His Father's will. God the incarnate Son willingly submitted to God His Father in everything He did. God the incarnate Son subjected Himself to Joseph and Mary, sinful human beings. God, the incarnate Son, subjected Himself to the righteous law of the Mosaic Covenant. God, the incarnate Son, subjected Himself to His Father and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Did Jesus not say to his mother, Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? That's what Jesus was about. Did he not say to his disciples, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work? Did he not say, to his heavenly father from the cross. Listen carefully. My God. My God. Not their God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? That's his very language. Did he not say to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection, Go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Jesus plainly puts himself into the place of saying, There's a God who rules and reigns. And I serve him. Didn't he regularly go to the synagogues? What was he doing there? If he was not worshiping, he would read the word of God. 
He practiced Passover and the laws that were set before him. He could say, my God. Did not Paul pray for the Ephesians that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is not that the infallible word of God? I wasn't just playing words when I made that statement, though I will probably not do any summaries in the future. You and I need to sit and take the, the scriptures very, very seriously. And when something that looks like an anomaly shows up, we need to be thinking about it. Why is it there? This is the inspired, this is the God-breathed, infallible Word of God. We should be looking for our Christ. We should be looking carefully at the things that are said. Did not Christ say unto the church of Philadelphia, Him that overcometh, and listen to this one carefully, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. That's a wonderfully long service. And I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. Which is New Jerusalem. Which cometh down out of heaven from my God. So then, what does God has a God mean? It means that God, the incarnate Son, submitted to, served, and worshiped God the Father while on earth. You need the Trinity and the Incarnation to understand this. While he was on this planet, our Savior came humbling himself, made, as we will see in chapter 2, a little lower than the angels. In the context of of his humanity in his manhood. He worshipped his father perfectly according to the letter and the spirit. He did exactly what men were made to do and don't. He gives the extraordinary model of us of faithfulness to God. So we're not talking about two gods. We're not talking about a strange and a foreign doctrine. We're simply taking what Scripture has said and putting it in a way that makes us think about what the rest of Scripture says. And the rest of Scripture, uh, if I can say, affirms that notion Jesus called his father my God as the eternal son before incarnation there was no need 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share the same glorious, holy, perfect essence, all of the attributes. God is simple, not broken up into parts. And yet, the incarnation changes the picture and the relationship. So, all of this is important. God, the incarnate Son, submitted to, served, and worshipped God the Father while on earth. Now, this is a part of the mysteries of those great doctrines. And why did the eternal Son humble himself why did he unite with humanity in the virgin's womb? Why did he, as a man, obey his father by dying on a cross in a dreadful place called the place of a skull? To save the never-dying souls of every sinner that repents of his or her sins and believes on him. Jesus is truly, in every way that our minds can possibly handle it, was truly God and truly man in one person. And that's another reason that the Son is greater than the angels. God the Father affirmed him as God and then spoke of him <laughs> as having a God, his Father. Well, that brings us to our next head. Number two, Jesus the Son is the almighty creator. <clears throat> Verses Eight and nine are extraordinary. We could mine them for a very long time. But I do trust that you see God, even thy God, <clears throat> has anointed thee. He anointed the Lord Jesus with the oil of gladness. This is the anointing and the powerful filling of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. John tells us. So, we move on presently to verses 10 through 12. The Holy Spirit now says, And thou, Lord, and, and connects us to the same speaker that we've been hearing. And who is the speaker? God. The author of Hebrews writes, but he's not using his voice there. It is God. God speaking. God has declared his son God. And now God says, thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, 
and thy years shall not fail. These are great words upon which to rest our immortal souls. It brings up another beautiful aspect of Christ Jesus. Creation reinforces the deity of Christ. Verse 10. God's Spirit has now revealed the deity of the Son with stunning clarity and power. Thy throne, O God, from God. No greater testimony to Christ. So now the Spirit reveals the deity one more time. To reinforce his revelation of Christ, he now returns to the theme of Christ, the creator of all things. We first discovered that truth in the exordium, the first four verses. <clears throat> Verse 2 told us that God now speaks to us by his Son, by whom... Also, he made the worlds. And verse 3 describes the Son as upholding all things by the word of his power. Now we read, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. The heavens here mean the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. The quote found in verses 10 through 13 here in Hebrews is from Psalm 102, 25 to 27. So once again, we find the author of Hebrews returning to the, 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 the treasure chest, the treasure house of the Psalms to show us Christ in the Old Testament. The phrase, in the beginning, should sound familiar to us all. In the beginning takes us back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that, in the beginning, is uh, attributed to Christ here. The Son, the theme of Creator runs throughout the, the entire Bible but it always connects it to God's almighty power and sovereign rule. This is what sets him apart from all the false gods. None of them made anything except chaos of human beings. <clears throat> Only God creates. So it's especially important to know that Psalm 102 is addressed, if you go back and read it, you read the entire psalm, you see that it's addressed to the Lord, caps. In other words, Yahweh, Yehovah, Jehovah, the one true and living God. And once again, the Son is being addressed with the words that point to His deity. So applying Psalm 102, verse 25, to the Son reveals exactly what was said in verse 8. O God, 
The Son is God. He laid the foundation of the earth. He created the immeasurable expanse of the universe. His power is incomprehensible. His wisdom is beyond the scope of our understanding. His goodness is immeasurable. His knowledge is infinite. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And when we say God there, it means Father, it means Son, it means Holy Spirit. The firmament showeth his handiwork, his glorious building and construction. How can fallen human minds express the glory, the beauty, the majesty of God's creation? If we're to believe science, they keep going as far as they can and they cannot find the back wall of the universe. They cannot find the stop sign. The more we learn about it, the smaller we get. And the bigger the one who said, let there be light, gets in our estimation. This is being attributed to the Lord Jesus. This is being attributed to the Son. S-O-N. My brethren, we can only stand in wonder and awe as we learn more and meditate on God's creative genius. I couldn't think of a better word. God is God. But everything that we see, everything that we study in science astonishes us at its mechanism, how it works, why it works, where it works, when it doesn't work. What brilliance, what supreme, what superior ability, what wisdom His knowledge is infinite. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And again, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. If your flesh is as fallen as mine, I can go out and see a beautiful, clear, starry sky and go, and it's beautiful without going how much greater its maker. How glorious everything he has made is. There's a reason, there's a purpose. I mean, even for roaches. It would seem like that could only have come from the fall, right? But everything that he does, everything that he... I, 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 I watched a documentary recently about fire ants. It's one of the most interesting things I have seen in years. Of course, I don't see many things. <clears throat> don't have much time for that. But what the fire ants can do and are doing, they've even shut down 
power stations. Just those little ants. They are the most industrious creatures that you can possibly imagine. One of the reasons, I'm sure I don't know that the Lord had fire ants in mind, but he said, go to the ant. Go to the ant. Go learn something about being diligent. Young people, that's especially important for you and for me. For those of us who live in this world, we should be diligent about our service to the living God. We should be hard workers for building his kingdom. He uses us for that purpose. So, how can fallen minds express the glory, the beauty, the majesty of God's creation? Truly, I run out of words, and it's just creation. It's not God himself who is infinitely above it and totally other, not dependent on anything he's made, on anyone or any <laughs> anything. Gloriously, all the living first cause. This is applied to the sun. What you're looking here and at least I trust thinking about its, its magnitude is being applied to the sun. He's the one that... Uh, I, I can't tell you the sequence. I don't know how God did everything that he did, but all you have to do is read carefully. And God simply said, let there be, and there was, and let there be, and there was, and let there be, and it was good. This all applies to the sun. He's applying a glorious psalm that the Jew would say, ah, this is Jehovah, this is Yahweh. And they're applying it to that one that was crucified, that one that died like a criminal. You get, you get that? When someone dies like a criminal, we don't think that their life has been much of a contribution to the community, right? It was the most astonishing crucifixion ever. The creator was put to death by creation as he hung on a tree that he had created. Brethren, do you think thinking about Scripture is hard because we're fallen? Our brains kind of don't want to go there sometimes. And very often we get off into the deep end of the pool and we don't know what to do next. He's so extraordinary. But that should fill our hearts with joy. If we could, God, if we could figure God out, we would be God. We're not. We are desperately needy creatures that need the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-present God. When we're in trouble, we want him to be there with us. He never has to say, sorry, I'm busy with these folks over here. All of this is laid upon the God-man. The God-man. 
<clears throat> he in his deity created. His humanity did not exist when creation began, except in the minds of God. I repeat, we can only stand in wonder and awe if we're truly thinking about what we're seeing. If we're thinking about what God has done. Because the Son is God the Creator, He is in His deity, almighty, all-knowing, all-present, infinite, gracious, merciful, love, faithful, holy, and much more. Do we know Him? Do, do you know Him? Do you, say, do you take some of these things that are said and think about the immensity of them? I mean, after a while, your mind simply can't go further. Scriptures do. But the more we think about, the more we look for our God, the more we look, because this is revelation from, from Genesis to the apocalypse. It is revealing the object of our worship to us. And as we unfold the extraordinary grandeur of God's covenant of redemption being uh, fulfilled in, in Christ, we are seeing, we are seeing the glorious God of love and of holiness and of righteousness. Hmm. And, and, and the long list. My friends, New Testament Christology is filled with text from the Old Testament that are originally applied to Jehovah. Every time you read that, every time you see one of those applied to the Lord Jesus, they're saying that Jesus is God. He is the God-man. Not partially God, that wouldn't be God. Not partially human, that would not be human. Fully God, fully man. To save his people from their sins. The scriptures constantly reveal that what is true of nature, of the nature of one person of the Trinity, is true of the other. We're talking about their nature. There are different acts of the persons of the Trinity. That is how we can identify them. It's not three gods. It's one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it isn't as though Father has a certain amount of Godhood and the Son has maybe a little less because He's the Son. It is one God, one simple God, one glorious God that fills the universe. And yet Christ was reduced, as the great hymn says, to a span. He was reduced into the dark place of the virgin's womb, the miracle of uniting deity with flesh took place. And yet God can apply to that incarnate son the term 
God. Thy throne, O God. And now the Creator. Something applied to Yahweh is applied to Christ Jesus. Well, all, all of them share in the divine essence. And all are worthy then of our most fervent worship. Our most loving obedience. The Holy Spirit portrays Christ here in this passage. Verse 10. As the master builder of the universe. He lays the foundation and then building the glories of the heavens. And it says with his hands. The son is king. The son is creator. The son is the master builder of the universe because the son is God. The son as eternal before creation. Now, we begin to talk about him very soon, especially chapter 2, in his work as mediator, the God-man. That's why I'm saying that Hebrews is back and forth in these things. We have to look carefully and ask good questions. This is another reason that Jesus is better than the angels. He's the builder of the universe and all the wonders in it. Well, creation is temporary and changeable, but the Son is eternal and unchanging. Verses 11 and 12, and I will try to make quick work of this, but once again, all of this is a feast on Christ. Brethren, let us hear the word and worship our Creator. Don't just have pad and pencil notes. Have a greater Grasp on the one you love and serve. That's the idea of studying, not, not just to make you a fathead. <clears throat> not that that applies to anyone here. Only you know. But the text says, They, the earth and the heavens, shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all, they all shall wax Old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. This is the way he talks about this universe. He has folded up. Done. Do we believe that? Next time you're wrestling and struggling and in trouble, you want to make sure you have this God. Vesture, like a vesture, like a robe, you can fold it up. And they should be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Nothing in this sin-corrupted world lasts forever. We know that. Uh -uh. Children will get that sooner or later. They'll understand, oh, broken. <laughs> it's just not working anymore. Ah, we might have to get rid of that. No. Yeah, well, nothing lasts how many times did you tell your children that? Well, things don't last in this world. They don't. Everything has a, begin, a beginning and everything has an ending in this world. Everything. That's why it's hard for us to imagine a God who always has been. He didn't begin. We try to make him be like us. 
when we think somehow or another he had to have a beginning. And he will never have an end. That's what's being said about Christ right here. You will never end. You never had a beginning. You will never end. There was a beginning to his humanity. But now his humanity and his deity are welded together forever. While there was a beginning to Jesus, as the baby was named, there was no beginning for the eternal son. But when we get to this, sometimes I feel like I just need to sit down. It's too big. This is too big. Nothing in this sin-corrupt world lasts forever, but what a sharp contrast the Holy Spirit sets before us. The awe-inspiring creation shall perish. We look at this, we think, oh, it's going to last forever. It won't. But Jesus, the God-man, will never perish. By the same word, listen carefully. Peter tells us, of the perishing world. The world will perish, but Christ will not. Peter says, the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's perishing. And we're a day closer to it. Do you believe it? All the trophies people worked out for and exercised for will be ash dissolved gone. All the accolades, all the praises of men gone. All the big buildings we built or all the communities that we built or all the armies that we commanded or all the trinkets and trophies of this world mean nothing. They will be gone. How fruitless. Unfortunately, how spiritually mindless it is to live for the world. They're going to be changed. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night into which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Read that a hundred times. Needs to be stamped on our minds so that it augments what we think is important. The text then says, and they shall wax old in Hebrews, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. Now the Spirit here portrays the world as an aging garment. You ever had one of those? <clears throat> I have my very first suit. It included a vest, 
which was the part I liked the best. But after a couple of decades, the back of the vest began to wear out. And it wore out. The seam gave way. The thread started hanging. It was sad. It was sad. Couldn't wear it. Myra had to tape it once so that I could uh, do a particular event. She had, to <laughs> she had to tape the back of it. It's pretty bad when you're taping your clothes. It's worn out. You get the picture? <laughs> it's worn out. And the Lord is saying, kind of like Pollard's vest there, the thing just wore out. It was nice. It was good fabric. It was a nice thing when he got it, but it got old. And so is this universe. It's aging. <laughs> and it's going to wear out, and God's going to destroy it completely. It will be gone. And those that are in heaven will delight that all those wretched memories of their sins against their pure and blessed Savior are gone. There's no monuments left to your sins. I've got plenty of them in this world. I have to look at some things and just wince. After I get an eyeful of what I've been or what I've done or how I've failed, I look to Christ where it was finished. None of that will follow us into the glory to come. Everyone in hell will realize that they lived for the wrong God themselves. They will realize they were either lied to or they bought the, the, the trinkets and all the parties of the world and all of the honors and, and all of the things that men and women live and spend their money on. But they're spending money on more than ever right now is trying to do everything they can to reverse death. It's not going to work. I tell you, young people, children, you need the Lord Jesus. You need to know him. Your parents, the faithful parents, have taught you that you're sinful. They've taught you that from the word of God. And they've also, if they're faithful parents, they've told you who the savior of sinners is. All of this is going to be gone. All of it. The God-man, as the God-man, his humanity perished but he will never perish again. He was raised again in glory and ascended up into the regions of eternity and all the glory and stunning beauty of it. And he's, he as the lamb is all the glory of it. Of Emmanuel's land, there he is. He's waiting. He's praying for us. He is interceding for us. He is our very surety. Our entering glory will not be because we were so great, so good, because we got a reward. Going to Sunday school and got all those gold stars for being present. Not going to be that. It will simply be rewards 
for those who faithfully walked with him. Very often, they're not even noticed by the world. The one thing that should make us noticeable is speaking to them of our glorious Savior and living the life to which he has called us. Jesus' resurrection conquered death for him and for all his people. The text here also portrays heaven and earth as a cloak or a robe, as I said, that the sun will just fold up. But again, Christ is eternal and unchangeable. He's God. That's what's said right here in the text. You're not going to change? That's right. Praise the Lord. When I wake up tomorrow, when I sense and know my limitations, my weakness, that there's still sinfulness, when I would do good, sin is present with me. So is my Savior and His promises. So, brethren, He is always the same. His years will never fail. He doesn't have years. That's said for our benefit. He's sitting in the glories of eternity. There's no watch. (laughs) There's no clock that everybody's waiting. There would just be that moment when the Father says, Go. And he rises up, splits the sky, and comes in that incredible day of judgment. Children, you're a day closer to it. Your life is always under review in heaven, just like ours are. You need a Savior, and Christ is he. Well, it's time to stop. I will try to pick up there, God willing, last week. But let me, let me close by saying this. The, the looking at Scripture here today is to, God willing, to help each one of us to recognize that this isn't just a theological argument that the, the author is making here. It is a theological argument. He's arguing with his Jewish brethren that Christ is better. Christ is better than anything they can go back to. And I would say the same to you. You don't have to be a Jewish believer uh, running from persecution. You just need to face who and what you are on any given day. You need Christ. We need his glorious robe of righteousness and that's what gives us peace. That's what gives us joy. That's what gives us happiness when the world goes dark because it makes a lot of promises that it can't keep. Christ keeps all his promises. He, why? Because of what we looked at. His father said, you are God sitting on your throne. You are God. And then turns around and says, thy God, thy God. We have this strange thing at first. But when we understand that there is one God that share the same nature in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the Son, eternally God, became man remaining the eternal son 
and uniting with manhood. That's part of what the Bible means when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, the God-man, not just the nice guy that our culture wants, the hippie who's just walking around looking for peace and a love in, but the very creator of heaven and earth. He loved us so that he became a man to die in our place. This should draw our hearts out to love. This should draw our hearts out to service. This should draw our hearts out to worship. Here is our God. He is a righteous king. And God willing, we will talk more about his righteous kingdom next week. O Christ, thou art the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted more deep. I'll drink above. Oh, that every one of thy children can say that and sing it with joy, with all the heart, with, with a joy that approaches even laughter or even a joy that reduces to tears. But thou art all the glory of Emmanuel's land. We long for thee, O Christ. We long to be with thee. We long to be like thee while we are in this world. We praise and thank thee that thou didst pay for all our sins upon the cross, that thou didst rise again to ascend into glory. Thou art governing, and we praise thee. Help us to see more of thee and why thou art better than the angels and better than Moses and better than the old covenant. May we feast on thee now and forever. We pray it in thy name. Amen. Please stand with me. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. Amen. Let's go in the name of Christ our Lord.